Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. Now listen, going to a real-life party that was packed with people, that would be a terrible idea right now. Thankfully, what we're doing here, this is a radio hangout, but it is going to be packed. First up, we've got Matthew Gavin Frank. He wrote a book about diamond smuggling in South Africa, which involves way more pigeons than you would expect. Then Davy Rothbart and Cheryl Sanford will stop by to tell us about their documentary, 17 Blocks, which took 20 years to make, but was very worth the wait. It's an incredibly powerful film. Then Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis will play us some music. Speaking of long-running collaborations, they've known each other for 25 years, since back when they were in the Squirrel Nut Zippers. Okay, so that's the plan. We got five pounds of live wire, and we're trying to put it in a one-pound sack. Stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Tweet, tweet, Luke. (laughs) Did you say tweet, tweet? Cock-a-doodle-doo. You are so excited that we have an avian-focused theme this week on the program, aren't you? Yeah, we're not live wire now. We're bird on a wire. Ha-ha! Oh, my goodness. This, this is going to be a thing, I think, this week. Hey, speaking of our little radio show, should we get to it? Let's do it. All right, Molly, are we recording? We are recording. All right, Elena, take flight. From PRX. It's Livewire, recorded from our actual houses. Welcome to the Livewire house party. This week, filmmaker Dave B. Rothbart and Cheryl Sanford from the documentary 17 Blocks, and writer Matthew Gavin Frank, with music from Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Blue Burbank. Uh, Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We have a very fun show in store for you, the wonderful Livewire listeners this week. Speaking of our wonderful listeners, we ask them a question, uh, as we tend to do. We ask, what is your favorite bird and why? Mm -hmm. This is because we're talking to Matthew Gavin Frank about his book that talks a lot about the pigeon. And then, of course, we have music from the one and only Andrew Bird coming up later. And also, we just like birds a lot on this Mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get to those in just a little bit. First, though, 
we got to get to the best news we've heard all week. Elena, what is the best news that you've heard all week? Ah, this is such a good one this week. Um, Have you ever heard of a little institution called NASA? Let's see. Yes, it's ringing a bell. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, NASA has headquarters that were just renamed after a woman named Mary Jackson, who was one of the West Area mathematicians, the West Area computers that were featured Uh in the book Hidden Figures, if you ever heard the movie. You know, these African-American women, um, amazing calculators who became, you know, basically rocket surgeons. (laughs) Right. But um, because of institutional racism, didn't get promoted, had to fight really hard for their positions, but they, you know, changed the face of American aeronautics. And the headquarters of NASA uh, in D.C. now are going to be named after Mary Jackson. That's awesome, Elena. Like, I mean, you know, long overdue, but mm-hmm. um, but certainly important to get some recognition yeah. uh, to folks who are super important to this. I mean, NASA has been like, so in the news because of the Perseverance rover and everything. Mm-hmm. But you get the sense none of that would have happened without a lot of people who haven't gotten enough recognition. Yeah. Um, speaking of people who I think deserve some recognition, I think the best news I heard all week uh, involved Stony Brook Intermediate and Middle School in Indianapolis, Indiana, where an eighth grade student was sent to the principal's office. The principal's named Jason Smith. And the kid was sent to the principal's office because he wouldn't take his hat off. And the rule at this school is you can't wear hats. Mm-hmm. And the principal said, what's going on? And the kid said, I'm embarrassed about my haircut. Oh, no. (laughs) I got a bad haircut recently, and I don't want to take my hat off. And this enterprising principal, Jason Smith, instead of just saying, you know, you got to take the hat off, go back to class, or sending the kid home or whatever, said, guess what? I cut people's hair on the side. I kind (laughs) of know what I'm doing. How about I fix your bad haircut? And so then he calls up the kid's parents. They give permission. The guy goes home, gets his clippers, comes back to the school, and fixes the kid's haircut. He goes home and gets his clippers? Yes. And then comes back. And now the kid's hair is all dialed in. Doesn't have to wear the hat. This principal sounds amazing. I mean, he really just sounds like he has a heart for these students. It's another account of a kid whose shoes were kind of coming apart. Mm-hmm. You know, the sole and the shoe were separating. And Jason Smith went out and got him another pair of shoes. Oh. I mean, it's just like, these are the little things mm-hmm. in your childhood that can be so huge. You know, Amen. just feeling kind of not embarrassed about yourself. I had a terrible haircut in eighth grade because my mom took us to the training center mm. for the haircut place. Like it wasn't, these are the people that were learning how to cut hair. Mm-hmm. and it did not go great. And I showed up on the first day of eighth grade with a haircut that was extremely unflattering. I really could have used a principal Jason Smith in my life. So the fact that uh, this eighth grader in Indiana didn't have to go through that, that is the best news I heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest on over to the Livewire house party. He's got a story to tell, which I think our listeners are going to be repeating next time they're allowed to go to actual parties and make small talk. Mm-hmm. They're going to be all like, hey, did you know in South Africa they use pigeons to smuggle diamonds out of mines? And then the other people <laughs> at the party are going to be like, no way! You're the life of this party with your interesting <laughs> anecdotes. Um, it's all true, actually, and it's all laid out in Matthew Gavin Frank's fascinating new book. It's called Flight of the Diamond Smugglers. Matthew, Gavin, Frank, welcome to the Livewire House Party. Thanks so much for having me, Luke. This may be as excited as I've seen Elena uh, (laughs) to have a guest on the show, because you guys go way back, I guess, right? 
I've, I've seen Elena excited in, in various contexts. Um, <laughs> so this, this is like super tame Elena Passarello right now, but... <laughs> Um, this book is, is, is really fascinating and, and just full of things that I just didn't know before I picked it up. Uh, it does start though in a pretty serious place. You and your partner, Luis, have kind of gone through some personal tragedy. Can you, can you kind of talk about where the book starts out and, and how that launched you on the journey that eventually became this book? Yeah, yeah. So um, we, we had a lot of bad luck uh, conceiving uh, a child. We, we had baby fever for a while, and um, it just didn't work out. Uh, we endured a number of miscarriages, and on our sixth, we were just, you know, pretty much knocked out emotionally, physically. And her entire family uh, still lives in South Africa, um, where she was born and raised. And she just needed to be around her intimates at the time. And we decided not only to go visit her family, but we decided to kind of conduct a funeral ceremony of sorts for uh, our last miscarriage at this place called The Big Hole in Kimberley, South Africa, which uh, used to be in like the late 1800s into the early 1900s, this just gaping open pit diamond mine. And now it, it was turned into this really kitschy tourist attraction. And I went into The Big Hole Museum and started looking at diamond exhibits and became curious uh, about the diamond industry there. And then that compelled me to a different area of South Africa in the northwest corner on the Namibian border called the Diamond Coast. And there I discovered um, a bunch of folks who employ ingenious methods for smuggling diamonds out of the mines, including using trained carrier pigeons. So, so you meet a 13-year-old kid named Msizi, and he's got a pigeon named Bartholomew. How did you meet them, and, and, and how do these two uh, sort of uh, team up on this diamond extraction process? I, I met him um, and his mother in a parking lot of a convenience store uh, where, um, as, as luck would have it, we were both buying sheep's neck and cellophane <laughs> and rotten halves of iceberg lettuce. Like you do. Uh, like you do. And, and so, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so these diamond towns um, along the diamond coast of South Africa were completely cloistered um, for like the better part of 80 years, like mm -hmm. from like 1925, um, damn near all the way up until 2007. And the, the doors were recently thrown open to the public um, because it was deemed, uh, the area was deemed overmined. And so security started, um, you know, loosening a bit. And so... I was an anomalous presence there. Um, these communities were kept in isolation for generations. Wow. And so when an outsider is there, folks come up to you. And so Msizi and his mother just like approached us. Wow. And we got into a, a conversation and one thing led to another. And then uh, I was permitted by his mother to um, interview him uh, for uh, what I didn't know was going to become this book yet. I was surprised that this uh, young man spoke to you because what he's engaged in, I mean, he's he's diamond mining, but then he's also trying to sneak some of the diamonds out to help feed his family. This is a certain amount of personal risk for him, right? Because, I mean, this is the consequences are really bad if they get caught doing this. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, security is just um, in these local communities are just given a lot of leeway to enact their own sorts of unofficial punishments. I mean, that could range from being evicted from the diamond town and just being like turned out into the gullet of the desert. 
to being beaten, uh, to being maimed, and historically to being killed um, for such infractions. So like back in the day, um, De Beers actually gave security folks off the books commissions um, for every diamond smuggler that they caught, which of course resulted in many a fabricated charge. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the beating or sometimes execution of um, the falsely accused. And so there's just a long tradition of these sorts of punishments being enacted, but um, folks would still risk it all of the time um, because De Beers is still keeping these coastal communities in this like stranglehold of poverty uh, while they're running off to the bank, of course. I want to get into the mechanics of how somebody smuggles a pigeon into a diamond mine and then attaches diamonds to it uh, right after we take this very quick break. This is the Livewire House Party from PRX. We're talking to Matthew Gavin Frank. His new book is Flight of the Diamond Smuggler. Stay with us. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. Uh, probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank at my house. Elena Passarello is at her place in Corvallis. And we are talking to Matthew Gavin Frank. He's got a new book out called Flight of the Diamond Smugglers about the uh, the diamond trade in South Africa and in particular uh, the some of the people uh, who are trying to stay alive and make some sort of meager living by smuggling diamonds out of the mine with pigeons. Um, this uh, 13-year-old boy, Msizi, uh, and his pigeon Bartholomew uh, are kind of the stars of the book in my mind. How, how does one sneak a pigeon into a diamond mine? Because they're like looking for that now. They know the security knows this is one of the things, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, the the interesting thing is is that South Africa has made it illegal to over radiate a person. So uh, De Beers Security has um, X ray machines uh, that everybody has to um, pass through upon entering and exiting the mine. But because of this law, it's a human rights violation to over-radiate somebody, um, the machine kind of lights up and whirs 
in exactly the same way, whether somebody is actually receiving an X-ray and being radiated and mapped, or if they're receiving a placebo. Hmm. So folks never really know when they're actually being X-rayed or not. And so folks risk it um, and are, are sometimes caught, um, but are oftentimes not caught. So Msizi would oftentimes sneak Bartholomew into the mine concealed in a lunchbox. I mean, next to a half a sandwich and a little bag of potato chips. And Msizi had fashioned like these little bags sewn out of, out of like Hemsbach hide. And he would tie one to each of Bartholomew's feet. Um, and on a good day, maybe one beneath each of Bartholomew's wings, which is a risk because a bird can suffocate mm -hmm. if yeah. um, the air vents are under the bird's wings, and set Bartholomew into the air to fly back to his home and his mom. Yeah, this book is is so fascinating, but I will just mention to people that the pigeons do not do well in the book. Like, if you're somebody who... <laughs> Is as I am now, having read the book, much more identified with pigeons. There's just mm -hmm. so many interesting things about their physiology. Mm -hmm. You do such a great job, Matthew, of writing about Bartholomew. I feel really connected uh, to to him as an animal. Um, did you have many thoughts about pigeons before you started writing this book? Not, not really. No, but uh, I, I, I'm just absolutely in love with them now. And so, yeah, so much of what I saw and was a, a part of there was was um, incredibly disturbing and incredibly harsh with regard to the animal abuse that was going on there and the the pigeon abuse specifically. Um, that in the book, I, I just had a kind of turn away from the horror in places mm -hmm. and just find like beautiful things about pigeons mm -hmm. to talk about. What's your favorite pigeon fact, Matt? I, I love the fact that they uh, kind of pass what's known as the mirror test, mm -hmm. um, which means they, they recognize their own reflections in the mirror, which is incredibly rare uh, in, in the animal kingdom. Believe me, I don't themselves. after the pandemic. <laughs> so they, <laughs> I look different every day, Luke. Some days I look like balder than others. Like other days, like I, I, I look like I have a weeping willow growing out of my head. Um, <laughs> But but uh, Elena, they they also like pigeons have been known to recognize all twenty six letters of the English alphabet. What? Um, yes, yes. B. F. Skinner uh, did this um, test that discovered that pigeons are superstitious. They exhibit <laughs> like um, a quality that is most associated with the manifestation of human superstition, uh, which is crazy. They recognize our faces. Um, they recognize human faces. So if you treat a pigeon kindly, it will remember you as a kind person. If you abuse a pigeon, it will remember you as an abuser. Mm. Wow. Uh, we're talking to Matthew Gavin Frank. His new book is Flight of the Diamond Smugglers about the diamond industry in South Africa in particular, some of the lengths that people will go to to try to sneak some of the diamonds out of the mine so that they can make a little money on the side. When you hear about a pigeon like Bartholomew with like three or four diamonds strapped to its body, that sounds to my ear like thousands and thousands of dollars. Like, you know, this this person would be set for for a year or something. But how much money are we actually talking about? So these are these are typically rough diamonds, um, unpolished diamonds, uh, and so I mean just to give you an idea of of what De Beers pays folks compared to what they make, an annual diamond harvest can be up to uh, like 176 million carats a year. A one carat diamond after it's been polished um, can run anywhere from like three grand to 23 grand, mm. uh, depending. I mean, the average being somewhere around like 6,500 per carat. 
when I was interviewing Mzizi, so this is back, let's say, in like 2016, he told me he was making about 20 cents per carat um, as part of the legitimate bonus and commission that De Beers gave him. Um, on the smuggling market on the side, he he assured me it was more than that, but not a whole lot more. Um, wow. And because diamond smuggling is so ubiquitous there, the rough stones just don't fetch that high a price, um, even, you know, in the, in the back alleys of the so-called illicit trade. Mm. Do you feel, Matthew, like, there's any moral defense for people buying and wearing diamonds now that you've spent so much time studying this and meeting the people who are affected by it? I mean, is people wearing diamonds part of the problem? Yeah, um, but the problem is so far gone that what do we do about it? Like, I mean, we're so deep into it. Um, that what do we do about it now? And so, yes, I think, you know, people's lust for diamonds is is very seriously part of the problem. Um, the fact that people don't interrogate De Beers' fictional narrative um, when it comes to rarity and thereby value. Um, diamonds are not rare. Um, they just maintain a stronghold um, mm -hmm. on them and release them onto the market ever so slowly and create this, like, fictionalized story of rarity and value. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it's actually illegal in the area to pick up um, if like a stone washes up on the beach and it happens to be a diamond and you pick it up and touch it and those beaches are covertly patrolled by a you know diamond mine security and if you're caught doing that you're arrested like even if you pick up a stone uh, even if you hold a rough diamond for one second um, this is the lengths they go to in order to maintain this narrative of of preciousness. But I, I really have no solution as to like what we can do about it now, because if everybody stopped buying diamonds, that would be bad for De Beers, but it would also send all of these folks even deeper into poverty. I mean, yeah. the the solution I think at, at this point is to continue asking the question: How can we do better? Mm -hmm. How can we, you know, treat these people humanely and pay people fairly and not abuse them and yeah. things? But it's really, really complicated. Mm -hmm. So much of this book is about carrying things, you know, it's like, and you write about that. It's like the pigeons are carrying the diamonds, uh, and, and you're carrying in the story, this weight of this tragedy that you and your partner have been through. I mean, this, I don't know if this is a corny question, but like, did you identify with the pigeons? Um, yes, I think, but that sounds, it almost sounds self-aggrandizing because, um, they're so lovely. And, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, we've just and, been talking about how they're miracles. And you're, you're like, yeah, I consider myself the same. And, and, so, and so pure, I mean, like the ancient Greeks named their prettiest islands after pigeons, right? Mm. Um, doves, uh, mm -hmm. which are pigeons. They're pigeons. You know, um, are, are symbols of purity. Um, these, are, these are beautiful, beautiful birds um, mm. and smart birds. And they've been mm. so good to us, right? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a that's a beautiful place to end this. And this is a beautiful book. It's Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, A Tale of Pigeons, Obsession, and Greed Along Coastal South Africa. Uh, Matthew, Gavin, Frank, thank you so much for coming on the Livewire House Party and telling us about it. It was my pleasure, Luke and Elena. This was such a joy for me. That's Matthew, Gavin, Frank right here on Livewire. His latest book is Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, A Tale of Pigeons, Obsession, and Greed Along Coastal South Africa. Uh, I also understand, Elena, 
that you and Matthew are going to be in conversation, as we say these days, <laughs> uh, by way of uh, Point Ray's books on April 8th. Yes, it'll be a Zoom event, and I think there are going to be costumes involved. So <laughs> I, tune in, friends. <laughs> I'm hearing the same information. Some bird-related costumery. So April 8th. <laughs> yes. Everybody go check that out. Uh, this is the Livewire House Party. As we like to do each week, we ask the Livewire listeners a question. And in honor of all the sort of bird-related content on the show this week, we asked, what's your favorite bird and why? Elena, what are the listeners telling you? Well, I shot this one up to the top of the list because it's mm. also one of my favorite birds. Okay. Uh, this is from Paul. Paul loves the roseate spoonbill for its elegance. Have you ever seen a roseate spoonbill before? No, I haven't. Um, what, what's it uh, look like? It looks kind of like a stork, but its bill oh. is long and then has a, a round end like a spoon, obviously. Okay. And it's pink and red. So when you see it like in Florida from the sky, it looks like an icon, like it would be on a shoe or a, a shirt or something. But then close up, it looks like a scary dinosaur with like pink red eyes and like this crazy bulbous face. So it's it's both beautiful and terrifying. And they're just they're just gorgeous. They have these red underwings, like a phoenix in the sky. They're amazing. Wow. Now I want to go to Florida and see one. Are we on in Florida? Maybe we'll do a live event down there when the pandemic is over. All bird audience. <laughs> I like that. Steve Martin once did stand-up comedy for dogs only. We yeah. could do live wire radio for birds only. That uh, what's another bird that our listeners love? <laughs> Here's a funny one from Casey. Casey's favorite bird is Bubo, the mechanical owl from the movie Clash of the Titans. <laughs> oh, man. Do you know that that guy, that little guy? I don't actually. I think I, I missed that one. It's really early stop motion animation. And oh, so it's no. just this little metal, it looks like a thin. <laughs> with like jagged edges and it's like <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> uh what's another one that our listeners are into maybe uh, one that's uh, you know an actual bird <laughs> here's one from willow um this is also a bird that i adore the crow because says willow mm. they are smart and pro murder <laughs> <laughs> well that is of course the description right of a gathering of crows the They're collective noun crows. yeah yeah. There's also, what is it, a parliament of owls? I uh huh. Think. A murmuration of starlings. <gasps> really? Mm hmm. That's pretty. Yeah, that's good. Um, Birds get all the good collective nouns. I know that we're not supposed to give our answers to this, Elena, because mm -hmm. this is the audience question, but I just want to say my favorite bird is the hummingbird. I know that's probably kind of basic, but no. I live in an apartment building and I'm on the 21st floor. And the people that live below me on the 20th floor have hummingbird feeders on their windows. <gasps> so while you and I are doing this show, I am constantly watching hummingbirds hovering like 200 feet above the streets of Portland, and it fills me with joy every time I see <gasps> it. That's amazing. Oh, you yes, lucky duck. I know. They're like the Neil Armstrongs of hummingbirds. Like they're at the like highest altitude ever achieved by a hummingbird. Anyway, okay, sorry. I just had to get that out. One more from the Livewire listeners before we move on. Well, I mean, I have to read this one from Molly then because Molly's favorite is the hummingbird because, as Molly says, quote, they're tiny yet mighty, not to mention delicately beautiful. So They are like a magic trick. Like they yeah. shouldn't even exist as they just levitate there in air. They also have these very long tongues mm -hmm. that I never knew about until they regularly hovered outside my window. That's pretty cute. So me and Molly are uh, definitely on the same page with this. Uh, all right. We got to get to our next guests who met way back in 1999. This happened when Davy Rothbart showed up one day unannounced on Cheryl Sanford's doorstep. Uh, Cheryl's nine-year-old son, Emmanuel, had brought Davey home after they met at a pickup basketball game. Uh, it was the beginning of an unlikely collaboration in which Davey 
uh, a white guy from Michigan and the Sanfords, uh, a black family in Washington, D.C., ended up documenting their lives for 20 years using um, like a simple camcorder. Uh, the result of all that footage is the new film, 17 Blocks, which follows the Sanfords through highs and some lows, including Cheryl's drug use uh, and the violent death of one of her children. The film is also full of these really sort of amazing moments of grace and beauty. Uh, the Washington Post calls it remarkable. Cheryl Sanford and Davey Rothbart, welcome to the Live Warehouse Party. Thank, Thank you. you. Davey, let's uh, start with how this film actually kind of came about. So you you were friends with Cheryl's sons, Smurf and Emmanuel. You'd met them playing pickup basketball. Uh, and so you're hanging out with the Sanfords when you have this video camera, and you're kind of recording things. When did you realize this could actually be a documentary film? You know, I, it really, all the early years, it was just born out of the friendship. You know, like I was in my early 20s. It was my first time being far from home and, and I was kind of lost. And And Cheryl likes to say that, you like to say that the that you guys adopted me, which is kind of how it felt to me. <laughs> and so I think filming, even though that was, you know, one of our initial ideas, um, it, it was just really one activity among many that we would do together, you know. I remember I taught I taught Emmanuel how to drive when he was like 11 years old, you know. Mm. Um, <laughs> and uh, just we'd do all kinds of fun stuff. But but we always would try to be conscientious about filming something. And, and then, you know, I think everything changed years later, probably after 10 years of footage, um, you know, when, when gun violence touched the family. I wanted to ask about that because there's a, a, an extremely tragic point in the film, Cheryl, where you lose one of your children uh, in an in a incident involving gun violence. Did you ever consider stopping having Davey document your family after that? Because that had to be a really emotionally raw time for no, you. No, no. I, I wanted more uh, footage at that time because that was my baby child and you know, that was the end of his life. And so I, you know, I, I felt fortunate that I had someone with a camera, a movie camera, that could take these last moments of everything. You know, I'm talking about mm. the funeral, him in the casket. I wanted that. I said, maybe this can help some people see that this is a person they could see that this person had a life, that mm -hmm. he meant something to people, and that you just didn't mm -hmm. kill a random person all of a sudden. You killed someone, and you've hurt a lot of people. Yeah, you I know? feel like you, you saw that this footage could have this value that, you know, this happened so much. So many of your friends had lost children to gun violence, too, but none had been filmed throughout their lives as much as your child had been. Uh -huh. I remember that day and you saying people people have to know what's going on. They have to be able to walk in my shoes, you know, or, or someone's shoes who's dealing with the loss of this and seeing, like you said, what it, what it means to have that person pulled away from your family and from the community. Um, there was a moment in the film that really gave me a different perspective on, on, on life in the neighborhood that you've been living in, Cheryl, where there's a T-shirt shop. And it would appear that their main business model is making T-shirts that memorialize people who've passed away. Mm -hmm. Many of those people have passed away because of gun violence. And the fact that that's a business model that exists, I mean, that was a world I hadn't really been in. Was that part of your hope with, with making this film along with Davey to just bring people into a, a, a version of the world that they may not know about? Yes, yes, very much so. I know people lose children from cancer. That's something that is considered like a normal uh, tragedy. 
But, you know, this was an unprepared for tragedy. You know, I just wanted people to see, you know, yeah. everyday, everyday people that it's not just me, it's a whole lot of us. You know, it's, it's, it's clear, Cheryl, that this is something that's still really a, a very emotionally raw thing for you, even as we're talking. Yeah. Has it been yeah. hard for you at all upon the release of the film to, to revisit this? I mean, this is your life in vivid detail and parts of your life that, you know, must have been so hard. No, um, since the release of no, because I, I I experience a, a moment every day where I feel pain from. Mm. Um, I mean, just little things, you know. He, you know, he's not forgotten. You know, he's gone, but he's not forgotten. So I I experience a lot of things because I I'm a daydreamer. Mm. <laughs> so maybe I'll see someone else that's approximately his age and favors him. And, you know, I'll compare it. And then there's times when I I wonder what he would be doing right now, you know, if he were here. You know, and I know some of his plans that he had. But, you know, I just wonder, you know, where he would be at in life. Yeah. I want to really stress, too, because we've been talking about the real serious side of this film. I want to mention this is a very joyful film as well. (laughs) You know, watching your family, Cheryl, live their lives and have fun together and you know, do all the things that people do when they're, when they're living, yeah. you know, uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, do you have a favorite part of the film? Like, is there a part of the film that makes you smile? <laughs> all of it, Luke. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> um, because, you know, I get to see my baby and it, it, it makes me feel closer seeing him alive and breathing. Mm. But um, I, don't have, I don't think I have a favorite part, you know. Do you have a favorite part, Davey? Is there a moment that you just love? Like maybe just from a filmmaking standpoint. And you you and I have talked about this film before. I know Emmanuel shot some of the cooler shots in the film, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I see new things in the film each time I see it. And uh, But yeah, some of, the, some of the footage that Emmanuel shot when he was nine years old is really striking. You know, there's like there's kind mm-hmm. of lyrical images and he, he had such a poetic eye. He he really had this like bright creative streak, and so when you see some of this, oh yeah, that he did, yeah, and <laughs> and Cheryl, you know, when you see some of that footage that he shot, and you're just kind of amazed, like, all right, a nine year old shot it, and and some of it's just funny, you know, him bursting in on Denise or bursting in on Smurf, and them, yeah. you know, like reason being like, get out of here with the camera, you know, some of that reminds me of my own family, you know, like, but for me also just seeing Justin, because you know Justin. It re- reminds everybody of of Emmanuel, and Justin is is Emmanuel's nephew. Mm-hmm. Um, later in the film, you know, twenty years have passed, and now Justin is about the same age that Emmanuel was when it, when we first started filming with Emmanuel twenty years ago, and um, and just seeing the world through Justin's childlike eyes, and and the, for for good and bad, you know, some of the the difficult things in the neighborhood, and but also there's a real beauty to the way to to his his joy and his buoyancy and. And uh, the way he is with his sister Faith and all that. that well, that's the same way that Emmanuel and Denise were. So yes. hmm. it's like watching them again in a, in a lot of ways, wow. you know. Uh, we're talking to Davey Rothbard and Cheryl Sanford. Uh, Davey helped produce a documentary about Cheryl's family. It's called 17 Blocks, and it, it follows the Sanfords over about 20 years of their life. Uh, this was a pretty long-term project, Cheryl. Did uh, at some point... Did your friends just think you were crazy that you were like letting someone film you for multiple decades? And like, were they like, this is not going to be a film? Like, did you ever think this is maybe not going to end up being a thing? 
I, like I said, I was surprised. It, I, I'm overwhelmed by it because the decision to really turn it into this documentary was because of his death. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of odd to see that, uh, like especially like times when we would go, ride down the street <laughs> and certain <laughs> streets and you you got the camera and the lights on and it's nighttime and people like, <laughs> you know, the people that stand out on the corner, you know, that made them think that, I was somebody important, you know. But, you know, I think from from the moment that everything changed, you know, I think we shared a mission, I, not just me and you, but Smurf and Denise, and, you know, like something good has to come out of this. True. This film, as you put it, you know, there's an opportunity here to bring people into my world, you know, and... and not only my world, to the world. To, yes. To the reality, mm. you know. Not just the way they see it on HBO <laughs> or uh, Showtime. <laughs> I'm talking about real, true life. You know, there's something going on everywhere, but certain things should be and can be prevented, you know? And I don't know how it's going to be done, but it has to be done. They've got to see what they're doing to themselves. Cheryl, I've heard you talk about when it's a statistic, you know, it's hard for people to really grasp onto the scope of the problem, but when it, they actually get to know a family and people that watch the film, they feel like they're part of your family, just like I've been invited to be. They feel it. They That's feel right. it the same way that we had to feel it. Yeah. 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 I, um, I heard you say something, Cheryl, a moment ago, kind of as a joke, but it resonated with me. You said when, when Davey was filming your family and had the lights on and everything, people were thinking that you're really somebody important, but of course you really are somebody important. And I feel like well, that okay. that's what comes through in the film is that everybody's okay. important. Hmm. You know what I mean? This random family in Washington, D.C. that's living 17 blocks from the Capitol that I didn't know existed three weeks ago, the Samfords, are important, okay. you know? Their experience matters, and I feel like that's the takeaway from this film. What are, what are you hoping people get from watching this, Cheryl? Wow. Luke. <laughs> um, exactly what they see. The pain. Mm. The pain. And that that is real life for us. For a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one day it's big news and the next day it's gone. It's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot of us that, you know, we care, but they don't get off the sofa. So that's my, <laughs> mm-hmm. my, my objective, too, that I was hoping that even those mothers who've lost children, hey, you know, we, we wanted sympathy. We want everybody to cry with us. But, hey, we just go back to our normal life afterwards. No, we've got to band together and, and, and make this a unified thing all around America because it happens in North Carolina. It happens in New Orleans. It happens in Chicago. It happens in New York. But, mm-hmm. whoa, wait a minute. That's... That's pretty sad, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think this film is going to get a lot of people off the couch. I know that it had me, <laughs> I mean, really, it had me thinking about this this kind of event in a, in a different and more real way than, than I would have otherwise. So, Cheryl, thank you so much mm-hmm. for, um, you know, sharing your family's life and, and the ups and the downs uh, of the Sanford family over the last 20 years uh, with Davey and with us, the viewers. <laughs> and Davey, thanks for uh, being the weird white guy with a camcorder <laughs> who showed up at their house because I think I think this is a really amazing film. Thanks so much. Thank you, Luke. That was Davey Rothbart and Cheryl Sanford right here on the Livewire House Party. Their film is 17 Blocks and you can stream it online right now at 17blocksfilm.com. Hey, special thanks 
this episode to Jenny Bloom of Portland, Oregon. Jenny is part of the Livewire member community and has been generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which is a big deal to us because we like getting to do this and it wouldn't be possible without folks like Jenny Bloom. So a big thanks to Jenny for making Livewire possible this week. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we've kind of had a bird theme running through the show, if you haven't noticed, or if you just joined us. Uh, we had Matthew Gavin Frank talking about pigeons. The audience question was, what's your favorite bird? And this all really kind of came about because one of my very favorite musicians, Andrew Bird, is waiting in the wings. In the wings. Did there, Elena. <laughs> did that just for you, pretty much. Uh, he's ready to join us, as is Jimbo Mathis. These two guys met years ago as part of the Squirrel Nut Zippers, and they have now joined forces once again for a new album called These 13, which details, quote, the special type of human connection that can survive any distance of time or geography. Mm. It feels like something we all kind of need right now. Mm-hmm. Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird, welcome to the Livewire House Party. Woohoo! Good to be here. Hey, thank you, man. So nice to be here, Luke. Uh, I've been fans of both of uh, your work for for many years. I I know you've said, Andrew, that uh, if you didn't meet Jimbo, your music, you you said, would have gone in a different, more cerebral, complex trajectory. What do you mean by that? I mean, at the time, I was coming out of music school, and I was into things that were a little heady, you know? And the people I played with were did a lot of talking about music hmm. and uh, more, maybe more talking than actual playing. And so it was really refreshing <laughs> to get invited into Jimbo's sort of Southern weirdo Gothic world where everyone uh, lived pretty hard and played music all the time. Hmm. And uh, there was very little discussion of what we were trying to do. You know, I don't know where my music would have gone if I hadn't met Jimbo, but he was certainly a huge influence on me. And just sort of unlocked some things in me that were wanting to get out as far as how I put on a show, you know, being a showman, because Jimbo's got this kind of old school vaudeville, like, you know, wild man Mm. stage (laughs) presence. And I was like, I saw that. I was like, I want to do that, Mm -hmm. you know? Jimbo, did you pick up anything from Andrew in terms of, I don't know, his approach to music? It's it's odd because we at that time we were both playing a style of and a type of music, early American jazz and cabaret and theater theatrical type stuff that we don't do anymore. Mm-hmm. In, in neither one of us. Um to the zippers he added a a skill set that was needed for me to <laughs> some of my compositions, you know, like the ghost of Stephen Foster, you know, it's, uh-huh. I, I have friends that are uh, violinist fiddle players now that can, that are excellent and can barely play what he composed for that song. You huh. know, I, I guess I don't, just, I don't know if I can play that. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and it, <laughs> it's a young man's game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard part. And, and I mean, he basically composed it on the spot. We didn't write music. You know, I, I still don't write I say compose, I mean, you just get struck by a lightning bolt. But, uh, I mean, he brought so much to so many of our songs that add an elegance, a grace, a, a good tone, a, a beautiful interpretation of, of my song. So we all really were kind of co-conspirators there. He was the person I leaned on for most of my compositions from that point forward. <laughs> I think I think it was kind of like I was 
trying to unlearn things and devolve. And <laughs> Jimbo and the Zippers were trying to evolve as musicians. And we met it somewhere in the That's middle. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, was, it wasn't until we made Jimbo's record Songs for Rosetta, which is a tribute to Charlie Patton. Really, he really turned me on to the Charlie Patton uh, music that I still listen to to this day and still cover his tunes. And that's what this new record, this collaboration after 20 some years is continuing that conversation. Uh, this is Livewire. We're talking to Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. Their new album is These 13. Uh, yeah. What was the process of creating this album like? Did it happen during the pandemic? It was just before uh, we made the, did the last session in January uh, before the pandemic hit. But it could have just as well have been. I mean, we wrote it remotely. Jimbo was in North Mississippi and I was in L.A. And he would send me voice memos, little demos of him, a snippet of a couple verses. And I would hear it and be like, oh, I see what you're doing there. And I, I would sort of answer the question that he was asking. And it was a, uh, for people that like us that tend to write alone, it was kind of a revelation to have that kind of uh, very quick, uh, bouncy conversation musically going, lyrically. Because um, we, I would just, you know, immediately hear what, he, what metaphor he was working with or how to take it to the next level or see the other side of the question or, you know, it was great. The cool thing about it is that we were able to record before the pandemic. So we were actually close proximity singing like we, you know, around a, an old RCA microphone, just a few feet from each other you know, with no headphones and just breathing the same air and feeling the, the vibrations, you know, of our voice. And you can hear the air, you can hear people <laughs> breathing, you know, you can hear me freaking out thinking I'm <laughs> about to mess up, you know, but that's part of my style. You know, it's like, I have a flaw in my playing, but it's, it's not a fatal flaw. It's just a, it's a, it's a cool quirk. So you can hear me finding my way through the song and, and Andrew responding to that just, like we do, you know, almost on a psychic level. And we always had that. Do you remember, Jimbo, the first time that you heard Andrew whistle? I, did, I didn't really whistle on my records in, until in the 90s. I didn't even think of it. Really? I, I, didn't, I didn't know it was a thing, you know, until I, <laughs> in, until I sort of started catching up with him here in, here in the past four or five years, you know. so I mean, you spend your life trying to master this incredibly difficult awkward instrument who would think that the money's in whistling yeah. <laughs> so you weren't like the whistling champ of lake forest illinois growing up andrew <laughs> no i mean i did it incessantly i would annoy my family but it wasn't uh wasn't tapped as a uh in a talent show somewhere you know <laughs> <laughs> this is the live warehouse party i'm luke burbank here with elena passarello uh, we're talking to andrew bird and jimbo mathis and we have to take a very quick break but don't go anywhere because when we come back we are going to hear a song from their new album. Stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co.
Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we are talking to musicians Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. This album is called These 13, and it's got 13 tracks on it. What is it about these 13 tracks? What are you looking to con- convey to the world? It just, it's a reflection. It's a reflection on where we're both at and with the world we see, you know, in, in, in the guise of, of folk music, which is what folk music should be about. It should be about folks. <laughs> I always heard something in Jimbo's playing that I just don't hear anymore, that I wanted to showcase without any other distractions. Um, and so that was the impetus that drove me to ask Jimbo to make this duo record. There's, there's something in, in the way Jimbo... Um, like he was saying, that the flaws, I suppose you call them that, but um, that are really, really refreshing to hear and, you know, that, that were more common in pre-war, almost pre-radio mm-hmm. music before, uh, you know, the eight-bar phrase became the, the standard mm-hmm. <laughs> for every verse, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so there'll be like a little, he'll flip the beat around, he won't go to the four chord when you expect, you know, it's just you don't know what he's going to do. Well, that's so exciting. Yeah, I find that exciting. It's thrilling, yeah. It can be quite shocking. Adds an element of danger and uncertainty there. You know, it's very thrilling, you know. So when when you actually finish the song, it's it's not like you sat there and and had a recital. It's like we just did something. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of funky, too, in a weird way, (laughs) right? It's kind of funky. It is. There, there's a funkiness there. Uh, well, let's uh, let's let's hear some funky, dangerous music here. What yes. song are we going to hear <laughs> from Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird? Uh, this is "Sweet Oblivion." Thank you. 
Getting on time, forgot to get old. Getting on time, forgot to get on tight. Rope walking to the other side. Where the light? No one really ever dies. No one really ever dies. Oh, sweet oblivion, dear child. And we were so very young and wild. Forgot to get. Got to get, got to get, getting on time, getting on time, getting on time. Tight. <laughs> <laughs> That is Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird. Their new album is These 13. Uh, Jimbo and Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the Live Wire House Party. We appreciate you. Thank you for having us. Thank you all so much. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, we are going to be talking to a writer who I am a huge fan of, Shay Serrano, about the way that he's been using Twitter during the pandemic to raise money for people who really need it. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, we're also, speaking of amazing things, we're going to hear from uh, two comedians. One's named Brooks Whelan and one named Nick Turner. Nick bet Brooks, and I should mention they'd been drinking, <laughs> that he could not run a marathon like the next day with no training. Cold. And Brooks <laughs> took him up on the bet. <laughs> and they're going to tell us how that went. And we're going to get music from uh, somebody who's in heavy-duty rotation here at my house, Waxahachie. We will also be looking to get your answers to our listener question, uh, which is what, Elena? What are we asking the listeners for next week's show? I love next week's question. Tell us about a recent act of kindness that you witnessed. Okay, if you uh, have witnessed some acts of kindness lately and you'd like to tell us about them, go ahead and uh, put your answer on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Livewire House Party. A huge thanks to our guests, Matthew, Gavin, Frank, Davey Rothbart, Cheryl Sanford, Andrew Bird, and Jimbo Mathis. I told you at the top of the show this was going to be packed. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this episode. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank member David Lowe Rogstad of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can find our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered 
right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.